You are listening to the Darkest Hour Media Podcast, the show that takes a loving look at horror films of the past and present and gives them a very thorough autopsy. I am John Evans, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchak. Gentlemen, I hope you're doing well tonight. I'm excited to talk about our movie. Mike, how are you faring this evening? I'm very good. I'm leaving early tomorrow, so tonight is uh, I'm going to be snuggling up early to bed, early to rise. <laughs> yeah, you're making a movie and stuff. I am. I'm leaving for Ohio so I can go shoot a death metal. On location, a horror film, and we'll tell you more about it in, in the future, I'm sure. Nah. Nah, you'll, you'll never hear about it. <laughs> we don't like promotion of any kind. <laughs> so, Vic, how are you doing tonight, bud? I'm doing well. I, I managed to avoid wiping anybody's asses before the podcast. I, I did get wow. I did Blue get poked moon. in the eye by my three-year-old, so I it's uh, I, I somehow managed to look stoned without being stoned, which is just no fun. <laughs> Too bad this isn't a video <laughs> podcast, right? You, listen, you guys, you, you guys can see my eye. It's like well, I have one eye that's red and it looks like I have pink eye. It's just it's just mm. horrific, but it's nice because I think it's going to lead lend a certain sort of body horror uh, <laughs> texture to the to the to the podcast that that will be fitting with the film we're talking about. Well, there's plenty there of you. eye trauma in this film, so I think that that is fitting. There you go. Vic, um you've had some good news recently as well. Uh do you want to mention that at all about your uh, your film? It's funny you should mention that because a film that I wrote called Darkness Rising is going to be released uh, on iTunes and on demand and everywhere else. Uh, and in a couple of theaters, I, I believe in New York, I hope in L.A., I don't know specifically, but on June 30th, please go see it. Pay full price. Don't download it illegally, jerks. Um, <laughs> I, I have back-end points. I have kids who need to go to college. Just, you know, fork over the fucking cash. <laughs> but this, this movie is kind of a lifelong pursuit for me. It went through uh, many iterations. It took me truly about 20 years ago. I wrote a short story that became the, the germ of the movie that this became. I mean, it really is an evolution. I haven't seen a finished product, so I hope it doesn't suck. I don't want to make any promises that I can't keep. But eye trauma, I can promise massive amounts of eye gougings and burnings and bleachings and God only knows what else. So there you go. Bleachings? Wow. Yes, yes bleachings. I was on set that day. Awesome. So I won't get into any more specifics, but you know what? I take it back. I am going to get into one more specific. You ready for this? Yes. Self-bleaching. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. Gonna be, nice. It's, it's going to be fucked up, and I feel, I'm just going to say this thematically a certain Lovecraftian connection to the film we're talking about today. We are uh, students of the same master, I think. Some of the same masters. I think there's a, there's a lot of masters that work in the void, so uh, I'm, I'm excited to dig into it. And uh, I want to mention that we're doing this show on my uh, 42nd birthday, and uh, by the time you listen to it, it might be my 43rd birthday. Yes! <laughs> It's going to take a while. <laughs> it's hilarious that we're talking about shit that's going to be like completely over and done with old news by the time this actually makes its way into the world. <laughs> anyway, let's dig right into it. This is a very new film that we're talking about. And of course, it is The Void, 
and it's gotten quite a bit of buzz, and I think that's kind of why we chose it, you know, at first, of course, just to watch and then then to do a podcast about because there was uh, discussion and enthusiasm and among our friends and, and of course, you know, the larger uh, horror movie aficionado community. It's just one of those things that we're like, well, all right, we got to take note of this. And sure enough, it definitely is worthy of analysis. So uh, the directors are Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostansky. Does anybody know anything about these dudes? They are closely tied in with the guys who did The Editor, a film that I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. They also did Manborg and Biocop. And if you guys haven't seen fucking Biocop, holy shit, dude. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Never heard of anything that you just said. Absolutely have to see Biocop. Okay. All right. Well, the lead in this film is Aaron Poole. Uh, He kind of has sort of a um, Breaking Bad Aaron Paul kind of a look. (laughs) Aaron Paul, Aaron Poole. That's funny. Um, Oh. Yeah. um, That's going to be a difficult thing for his brand. They they uh, would have sat next to each other in in, in a homeroom. (laughs) He also at weird times like uh he kind of looked like Mads Mickelson in certain shots and he looked like someone else entirely in others. He's got a weird face. I was getting a Jeremy Davies vibe off yeah. of him in that like that kind of like greasy hasn't Jeremy Davies hasn't showered in a couple days from that, you know, season 7 of Lost kind of thing. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, there's that and then also there's that guy who is in I believe it's Sinister playing the cop uh, he, uh, he's an actor that I, I liked on the wire quite a bit and I'm looking him up right now. James Ransone is his name. Yeah. So he, he, this, wait, this, wait, 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 he was, no, who, he, who was in this? No, no, no. He, this, this dude resembles oh, James he looks Ransone. Like, okay. Yeah. Sorry. I yeah. That all for you, John. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's a chameleon, you know? Yeah. Anyway, this, this cat, I hadn't seen him before, but, uh, I think he, Definitely delivers the strongest performance in the film. Uh, there's a lot of sort of nuance to him, and he he has an interesting way of providing comic relief in a way that doesn't really feel uh, too over the top. Uh, but we'll get to that. So the movie opens with a pretty shocking and strong open, I would say. Hell yeah! Within the first two minutes... Of this movie starting, a couple of dudes light a chick on fire. And immediately it's like, if that is a statement of intention, I don't know what is. You know? <laughs> yeah, these guys uh, are, are chasing two very seemingly innocent looking people. Uh, a young man and a young woman out of a, a house. A house that appears to be abandoned. And these guys are stone cold. And they shoot the girl in the back. And then uh, pour gasoline on her and without any remorse or restraint, set her ablaze. So uh, you're, you're obviously thinking at this point that these guys are very bad dudes and they're going to be up to no good in the course of the film. And uh, it, uh, it doesn't quite, uh, there's, there's, there's a few twists along the way, as I alluded to before. There's no evidence that that chick didn't deserve to be set on fire, right? <laughs> we don't know what before this. You know, it's funny. If you're making a horror film, I mean, we're all hardcore genre aficionados, and I assume that our that our listeners are as well, right? So you're going to open your film just like we just did 
it follows. You're going to open your film with a gruesome fucking death. If, if it's Friday the 13th, somebody's going to get an ice pick in the fucking skull. If you're going to do It Follows, the girl's leg is going to be bent back double around her, her you know, uh, where her knee is or whatever. You're going to find some way to make this scene stand out and to make it work. And, and this, I think, works doubly in that in the first instance, you have a horrific death where you have these two people who just not quite callously because they are human and they, they do react to it. And particularly the younger uh, male character reacts in a sort of a human way to the notion that they're going to pour gasoline all over this girl who's been shot in the back and then light her on fire. But that we are as an audience making assumptions about them because of what we see in this very limited context. And because we know horror films and we know that, the person who jams the ice pick in the girl's skull at the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2 is probably the bad guy. And so when we see these guys light this girl on fire, we assume, hey, these guys are probably the bad guys. And it just turns out that that may not exactly be the case. Uh, so I think that the film right out of the gate takes advantage both of uh, shocking us a little bit with the with the violence and which is look, if you're making a horror film, that's not a bad way to get my attention, but also taking advantage of the assumptions that we are making about the scene we're watching. And that's a very smart horror film at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's playing games with the audience. And it's a father and son, as you mentioned, or at least, uh, you know, it appears to be uh, age-wise and, you know, as far as the the younger male uh, deferring to the older one. And that's going to prove to be an interesting dynamic throughout the film as the older guy is, you know, nominally the leader. But, you know, at, at different points, he sort of defers to the, uh, the humanity of, of the younger guy. And we, we, we get an interesting sort of reveal of their, their backstory later on. So uh, from, from that shocking open uh, and, the, and the title sequence, we meet our jaded sort of not entirely professional cop who is the lead. Uh, Daniel Carter is his name and he's sort of hanging out in his car. And there's a, I I would say it's a clever little, little bit of business as, you know, the dispatcher calls him and he sort of feigns being busy. And of course he's doing nothing but napping in his cruiser out in the woods. He's indicative of the movie as a whole in the sense that the dialogue and the character work is very organic. I really buy what all the characters are doing and why and what they're up to. And even when they're being funny, it's in a very real way. It's grounded. And I mean, even the scene, the way that he reacts to the guy coming out of the woods, uh, like I completely buy. I, I think that helps to give some ballast to the storytelling when things start to get off the hook. I just had the experience of, of coming back from a, a trip to Texas where you have, I think, small towns in a way that you don't have. Suddenly, the, the, everything is just a satellite of Los Angeles. And so when you live in Southern California, you sort of forget what it's like to be in a place where there are just small groups of people. And this is not a movie that has a large sense of place in terms of the community, but it does very clearly take place in a small town. And what I saw when, I, when you see this, This guy comes stumbling out of the woods. What his reaction is, is instantaneously, this is a drunk kid. Because what else could it be? I've been sitting around pulling my pud for the last five fucking (laughs) years. Nothing going on except drunk teenagers or whatever. And so I actually found myself kind of horrified that 
for a, an extremely long, like he gets out and is like, buddy, it's a long way to crawl home from here. Uh, like it takes him a long time to realize that there might be something else that's wrong. Yeah, he says, big is, night? <laughs> you yeah, know, and he yeah, really sells yeah. it. <laughs> as callous as it feels, if you've been doing what this guy's been doing in a town like this for as long as he's been doing it, it makes sense. You don't think that there's a crazy cult, whatever weird shit is going on that leads to something like this. And what that does, though, is set up the shock of his reaction when he finally clicks on his uh, flashlight and actually gets a sense of what's going on with this guy or thinks he does, at least. Just in those moments in his exchange with whoever it is at dispatch, about, I'm, I'm in the middle of a high-speed chase, this better be important. Those kinds of things, they paint a picture for you of what the life is around him, even though he is just sitting in a dark police car on a dark, on a dark stretch of road. A lot of haze made uh, by the other characters about how the fact that his father is kind of this when was still alive was this very renowned police officer. Uh, on the one hand, you get the feeling that he kind of just drifted into police work, I, I guess perhaps because it was expected of him or uh, it was just easy for him to get that job because of his father's connections. But at the same time, I'm also looking at this, I'm like, oh, I'm wondering how big of a hero his dad could really be if this is like kind of the thing for a cop around here. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of action you would think in this area. Uh, as much as like the concept or the idea of the girl being burned alive in the open uh, is horrifying, you know, whether you could say that it's to the film's credit that they show restraint, but it's a you know, there's nary one of those uh, super nasty, ululating screams that people in movies normally uh, give you when, they, when they're when uh, they set on fire, let alone anything graphic, you know, on the screen. So for me, the effect of that was pretty muted. On my second viewing, it did occur to me that, you know, if you set someone on fire, they usually like run around and shit, but I recalled that they, she had already been shot too. So my, my guess is that she was almost dead and the fire was kind of the coup de gras <laughs> yeah well i could buy that but i mean again we're talking about a horror film trying to uh, mess with the audience and for sure. me it wasn't uh it wasn't half as disturbing as it could have been i have, I have a response john fuck you <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know well, well well put Vic. Um, you know that's a, that kind of rejoinder is difficult for me to. Uh, you know, you, you've won me over. I think you can't get that kind of critical precision <laughs> on any podcast. You come only to the darkest hour <laughs> if you want to hear me tell John Evans to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes, uh, your rejoinder is well taken. But um, the other part of this uh, that didn't blow me away, like when it could have, is when the flashlight actually hits the dude's face who's kind of crawling along and they have a nice beat of uh extended tension as we don't know what his deal is or you know is he you know are his eyes gonna be gone or something and no he's just kind of got a little trickle of blood on his forehead and so for me the beat is sort of a uh okay so it's a guy and i guess he's not drunk uh you know it just didn't have a huge impact on me. And again, when you're watching a film for the first time, uh, you kind of in this genre, you expect these types of opportunities to be seized, you know, and to really, you know, deliver close to the maximum punch. 
And they're they're both kind of, you know, like almost TV level in my eyes. I disagree, John. I think this is part of what's interesting about this film is that it is it starts at a very low point and builds and builds and builds. I understand why you why you feel the way that you do. I think that what they're looking for in that moment when the flashlight hits him, it, it visually it's the blood, but they're looking for something in the performance. What actually leapt to my mind was I wish they had gotten Leland Orser for this. Uh, <laughs> you remember from from Alien Resurrection, right? That he's the you know like it's you know in Seven, like if you're looking for someone who's just been through like a drug-addled hipster who's just been through something devastating and is going to stutter his way through some terrifying confession of what he's been through, like Leland Orser is just who you get. Like That seems to be his, his role in life. By the way, there's a, there's a creature later in the film that reminded me strongly of Alien Resurrection. So yeah, that's a I, had the, I had very much the same thought about that as well. But the point is that what they're looking for in that moment, like the moment fails, but I don't think the moment fails because the directors, because the idea wasn't right. I think it's because the performance wasn't there. And that's, and that's a kind of okay. If you're going where this movie's going, start at the small end. Try and get me with a frantic look, the eyes of someone who's seen something he can't unsee, and then take me to the thing that he saw. Well, I have a lot of issues with just the directing of this film. And I think that would be more what I'm seeing versus like a, a failure of the performance. I mean, I think maybe for budgetary reasons, like a lot of things they don't just completely get, you know, like they don't get the shot to the, the you know, the, the ideal degree where you're like everything that I want to see in this image reads and it has the intended impact. It's more oh, yeah, I, I, I can kind of discern what, what's what's in the frame. And all right, I, I get it. But did that did that have maximum impact? Oftentimes in this film, it does not. No, I know it's from the Rebecca, uh, from the IMDb. They, they have a lot of credits in um, special effects and, and art direction. You know what's weird about that is that I had the thought watching it tonight that if only this film had like the effects crew from the walking dead, you know, I think it could be, you know, so much more, uh, disturbing, uh, because so many of things are really hinted at rather than shown. And, you know, I, I know we can, we, we, every podcast Vic has to mention the Stephen King book about the what's behind the door. And if we don't see it, it's better, but uh, you know, that's not always true. I, I think, but I do want to say, uh, in reference to your point about the slow build, Vic, I agree that where this film ends up is pretty freaking epic. And you have no feel for that in the open. And ultimately, this is one of those weird movies where the last 20 minutes or so, or even 10 minutes, elevates the film for me quite a bit because of the way it opens it up. John, I, I know it's your birthday, but I just want to reiterate this point. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I will bring up that goddamn Stephen King book as many times as <laughs> Dance macabre, everybody. <laughs> so uh, they – he has to rush this guy to a hospital, and turns out the, the most logical choice is – actually in the process of relocating the staff and everything because of fire damage. And uh, I guess they're abandoning the, uh, the hospital. So uh, hello, uh, assault on precinct 13. 
and there's only uh, two patients at the hospital at this moment. And there's kind of a funny beat when he uh, he greets them, uh, recognizing them, as you said before, Mike, you know, small town vibe. He knows this old man and his uh, granddaughter, I, I would assume. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And she's pregnant. She's getting medical attention. And there's also the wrinkle that Daniel Carter's uh, ex-wife or, or estranged wife is uh, the presiding uh, head nurse, I believe, uh, would be her position here. Dispatch immediately brings up this place, and he's really loath to go to that one. Exactly. Because of or, his relationship with Allison, his you know uh, partner, with whom he shares a, a, a tragic secret. The, the next hospital was only like 20 minutes further away. <laughs> and when you put this shit with the ex-wife together with the fact that there's one doctor, two nurses, and an intern in this place, like, <laughs> if he'd just driven the extra 20 minutes, nothing <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. Uh, in the movie, even the, like, the, the grandfather just like, I don't know how I'm going to take her into the city. And as an Angelino, I'm like, 20 fucking minutes? Really, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, this is yeah. the crux of the movie hangs on you guys having to drive from Van Nuys to fucking Woodland Hills? Like, come on. <laughs> That's a really, really good point. Uh, Especially yeah. well, because I, it's not like this guy is in critical condition. I think that uh, our cop isn't a hundred percent sure exactly what's going on with him. And, you know, speed still seems to be of the essence because he even tells dispatch, Hey, let them know that I'm coming let them know that I'm coming. It's our, our first clue that things are going to get a little strange is, you know, the fact that they have no idea he shows up and he's like, didn't dispatch call you? And there was like, no, we're just sitting here, man. Well, um, when that happens, you're not sure. Like if it's just falling down on the job, you know, like it's kind of, it plays comedically, but then we do right. of course get the, you know, the, the sense that communications are completely disrupted and they oh, yeah. are cut off in this hospital. Yeah. I, I immediately hipped to a, a sold on precinct 13, but uh, it also reminded me of uh, another recent film, uh, the last shift which I thought was also very good. Uh, I think that this movie would be a fine double feature with The Last Shift. Uh, don't know. It can't vouch for it. It's also uh, the decommissioning police departments uh, in a small town. Very limited uh, cast. There's a cult supernatural element, da-da-da-da-da. So. Well, I think that I mean, what's interesting to me about this film is that at once its strengths and its weaknesses are that in watching it, you're going, oh, this reminds me of blah, blah, blah. And most of the time it reminds you of those things in a good way or it takes just the right amount of a lot of John Carpenter. It's funny that you say it, and I'm I'm terribly disappointed in myself that I didn't uh, think of Assault on Precinct 13, but my the, the, the two things that ran through my head uh, largely were – Prince of Darkness. Oh yeah, is to me the biggest influence. But it really is. It's like if you were pitching this movie, you'd say it was Prince of Darkness meets The Thing. But you're right in that the first ten fifteen minutes of setup is Assault on Precinct Thirteen as well. What I enjoyed about this film, as kind of an overall statement, is it plays like a really solid greatest hits. You can go through the scenes and the and the choices. And you're like, uh, this movie, that movie, this movie, that movie. And a lot of it's Carpenter, but I, I'll, I, there's also some Hellraiser in there. 
There's a From Beyond. It's one of the more deeply Lovecraftian films that I've seen in quite some time. Um, it never feels derivative. It never feels like it's winking at the audience. Like it's it's not going, hey, you remember that? That was cool, right? It's a lot more like, a, I would say, season two of American Horror Story where it kind of finds a synthesis. I almost want to liken it to Tarantino. And the sense that he has, like, I mean, his stuff is full of, like, these very obvious influences. But he brings it all together in his own way to kind of create something new. I don't think that this film has as much, like, distinctive voice as a Tarantino. But ordinarily shit like that bugs me. And this time I was like, nah, dude, this is like a great assist, man. I absolutely agree, Mike. I think that it's, again, it, it does, it pulls from all of those things. From Beyond, actually, is another great for this I, I found myself thinking a lot about Stuart Gordon in general as this was going on me too you could throw stones at David Cronenberg from this movie I don't think he's a he's the closest influence although it's a Canadian film Cronenberg obviously a Canadian filmmaker very popular there so you have to assume these guys are, are, are at least aware of probably drawing on a little bit of video drone in the fly some of that kind of body horror when they're when they're doing some of this stuff although I think thematically much more firmly in the camp of, of Lovecraft. Um, and that's, look, when you pull, I mean, I think that's the thing, is you're pulling, when you pull all those elements together, when you're talking about not one John Carpenter movie, but three John Carpenter movies, and H.P. Lovecraft, and Stuart Gordon, and all that kind of stuff, when you put all those things together, mm-hmm. you do wind up with your own stew of uh, of a movie of a story and it's it, i mean that that makes it compelling I, I i agree i enjoyed this in large part because i was plucking out the influences but couldn't predict what it was doing based on when i said oh, yeah. that i had issues with the directing i mean it's it's competently directed i mean they're the oh, shots yeah. that want to look like carpenter look like carpenter and you know the sort of Stuart gordon-y frenetic handheld stuff like it's all executed well you know that that's not an issue, and I enjoy what you guys are talking about. I enjoy the the experience of this film in that way as 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 well. You also get a, a big Fulci hit at the very end. Yeah, and there's even a, a Suspiria visual reference in my eyes. Did sure. anyone pick that up? To what are you referring? I am referring to a green window in a door. Oh yeah yeah yeah. You know there's a there's a beat later on that actually remind me of something out of Neon Demon. Really? I, I actually, I picked up on uh, a Ghostbusters reference in the uh, the sun behind the pyramid imagery. Yeah, it's kind of like Gozer the Gozerian. <laughs> exactly, Gozer the Gozerian in the doorway she steps through in the, well, really inside Dana's fridge, but that sort of spoils the the mood of what we're going for here. Yeah, I absolutely love the pyramid and the skies, the roiling skies and sort of the unearthly quality of the landscape. All right, so at the hospital, we meet the intern, uh, Kim, um, and she's played by young Ellen Wong. And uh, it's funny because in this scene, I think the character has uh, a lot of promise. Um, She's like this very uh, unprofessional irresponsible <laughs> like the dynamic that she has with this patient you're like are they friends and because she's totally messing with with the patient another uh, yeah. a young guy who you know uh, she seems to have some interest in i would say 
and uh, she shows him like um, a graphic picture from her uh, medical textbook and is, you know, clearly making a nuisance of herself and he's not really uh, into it. And I just thought that this character was like, wow, you know, she's uh, she she's going to be fun. And uh, again, not to be, you know, the, the parade rainer, but I think that they immediately lose this this character and, and she could be anybody for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I, it's a great character intro. Uh, she's hilarious. Yeah. And, uh, it's very well written. The writing is sharp. The acting is sharp. Her character pops a lot. And, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I couldn't a hundred percent get like, like my first vibe was that she knew the guy and that's why she's kind of goofing around with him like that. But the second time I watched the movie, I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I think he might just be a patient. Yeah. That, that she's just kind of like spending time with. <laughs> it's like, I do. But, I, uh, I you think know, you're right. Hey, she, she ganks his jello. You know, just the <laughs> entire thing. Uh, yeah. I, 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 she's a hoot, man. She has this fabulous line where she says, you know. You're more likely to die in a hospital than anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell it's like a trailer line, but it's also yeah. set her up as a way in a way that you're like she could say that oblivious to the fact that she's talking to a patient in a hospital when she says, <laughs> yeah. "You know, uh, I could give you a catheter. That would be something you'd yeah. do." Yeah. <laughs> and that the line about the people dying in a hospital obviously has some foreshadowing and you know yeah, works on multiple important. levels. It's it's very right. clever. And I, you know, of course we have to notice it, uh, mention this, and it's something that uh, Mike always hates, and so it'll be interesting to see how he explains it in this one. But uh, they're they're watching something on TV. And it's Night of the Living oh, Dead. Oh, the motherfucking Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, yes. it's the last time we were getting to, we got together. We were talking about It Follows and the movies over the last couple of years that I've really fucking hit to have been stuff like It Follows, Babadook, The Witch, uh, because they're very uh, mature, intelligent films that are kind of building on dread. I, I, and they, they definitely have their scares, but they're crafted around dread. And I liked this one because it's a straight-up fucking heavy metal horror movie. It's just the greatest hits. It's balls out. It's funny, and then it's crazy. And it's like any movie that keeps making me go, what the fuck? You know, it's like... It What's funny, Mike, those... is that I've seen enough movies with you that watching it the first time, I could literally hear you say, what the fuck, in my head when things happen. <laughs> yeah, it's like... So, I mean, that girl getting set on fire in the first two minutes, and then, you know, a little bit later, uh, you know, some, some fun stuff goes down. So, overall, I'm saying that I really, really thoroughly enjoyed this film. But yet, I still had two tiny quibbles with this film and the one of them is motherfucking night of the living dead uh <laughs> as soon as i saw that i'm like come on guys don't don't do that the other tiny quibble just to get out of the way is when our hero cop uh gets upset by something and goes and vomits oh, uh yeah. at, at, at least he didn't wash his face yeah and uh, stare into the the mirror uh at his yeah, face yeah yeah but uh you know just just characters who get scared and then they vomit uh i'm also eh, come on you know it, it it feels like a very off the shelf screenwriter thing to do but i dude th those those are nits those are tiny 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 little things man. no doubt no doubt and you know the the idea that this is a night of the living dead scenario is quite obvious so right you know, I, I just have to say on this on the subject of vomit and horror film because <laughs> where else do you get to expand on such things I appreciated that they didn't show the vomit, right? Like, I was right. like, just he disappears into the stall, and I was like, all right, good, because I'm 
again, as usual, I'm eating my fucking lunch while I'm watching these movies. Thanks, guys. And um, <laughs> um, but second, I just have to tell this. There's a, I literally I, I worked with a guy named named John Carpenter. Not that John Carpenter. His name was John Carpenter. But he loved horror movies. And he directed a short and literally like I had sort of said at some point, I, can't, I wish I could remember the movie. I saw some movie and I was like, that's it. I'm fucking done with vomit. Right. Like I don't ever need to see anybody vomit in a movie ever again. And then John Carpenter was like, hey, I made this short film. And you take a look at it. And so I'm watching the short film and there is a girl who gets stabbed in the cheek. And then she vomits later, and the vomit comes out the hole in her cheek. Whoa. And I was like, I wasn't done with vomit. Like, I, I thought I had seen everything. You know, I had well everything. done. So, Bravo. So, yeah, so John Carpenter, if you're out there, if you're listening, I you you reinvigorated my interest in vomit and horror films. I thought we'd seen everything, but you have uh, you've let me know other I'm- interesting things that can be done. Thank you. Yes. On the subject of uh, moratoriums. Uh, people driving in the country who hit a deer with their car. I do yep. not need to see that in any more genre films. We just saw it in Get Out, and I had just seen another movie on Netflix that that had it in there. I mean, you would think if you watched horror movies that you cannot drive down a country road without striking yep. a deer. Now, wait. When I was in Texas, I almost hit a deer with my car. Well, almost say. is the operative word there. Well, it's I'm just saying the you know, thin line between real life and Hollywood. But I was in Texas for three days, and a deer left in front of my car in the dark at, at uh, one o'clock in the morning. Well, so. Vic, I wash my face every day, but it doesn't mean I need to see it in a movie. <laughs> right, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just a coincidence. The other thing besides the deer, uh, we never ever from this point forward ever need a movie in which um, a character is driving and they get distracted by something. And then they look up and, oh, no, look out. They plow into somebody and that's it. Yeah, suddenly they're yeah. in the wrong lane, like, completely. Yeah. They're, they're, no, they're no, in no, a head-on. It's like, you know, they're, they're always hitting people. You know, they get distracted for a second, then they look up. And well, no, they it's either it's either the headlights directly uh, in front of them or, yeah, the person who's um, in the middle of the road. But they happen to be looking for their CD. My personal favorite is when a character is really upset and they, they run off and sink to their knees. I've never, I've never in my entire life seen anybody sink to their knees when they're really upset. And uh, I feel like that will even happen in like fucking Fury Road. You know, it's like I, as, as brilliant as that movie is, it's still like when Shirley Theron sinks to her knees because she's so sad. I'm like, come on. Also, I want come to call on. a moratorium on on guys on stilts uh, attacking convoys because I've seen it too many <laughs> exactly. times. Exactly. I'm just saying it's like you know, so, you know, little things like that still sneak into the best of films. Guys, yeah. when I was in Texas, I saw a guy strapped to the back of a truck with a guitar that was spewing fire. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. All right. You know, it just happens. Apparently, Vic's trip to Texas just <laughs> just was the tour de force of his life. Yeah. Or, are you sure it was Texas and not Narnia? <laughs> <laughs> so it back to the film. It might have been the Australian outback. I can I can promise that. Oh, there. <laughs> All right, so the other characters that we meet in the hospital are the kindly doctor Richard Powell <laughs> and uh and he is very uh he is very earnest and um understated and compassionate and um kind of a you know I wouldn't say he's elderly but he's definitely 
you know, a good 60, 65. Yeah, when it comes to Powell, they, they, they cast that dude extremely well. Yeah. I, I, it's almost like they threw – the order was get me the most country doctor motherfucker that you could ever find. Like if this dude was dressed as a clown sitting on top of a mountain, you would still go country doctor. It's like, Kenneth <laughs> Welsh. Um, yes. And he's he's got a, a nice little IMDb page. So accomplished yeah. actor, and I abs- absolutely agree. I mean, he has that sort of gravitas and bedside manner. Like I'm sure this guy has played doctors numerous times in his yeah. It, it, in, 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 in an alternate reality, this guy would have had a long running uh, medical drama show in the 70s. <laughs> and, yeah. and interestingly, was in Survival of the Dead with Kathleen Monroe, for, who was the uh, Allison, the ex-wife. Oh, interesting. Nice oh. pull there, Vikram. Hey, that? look at that, guys. I'm bringing something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do like that when the cop and his uh, kind of estranged wife kind of run into each other, there's some unhappiness, there's some tension. You don't even hit to the fact that they're married at first. No. It actually comes out later and you're like, oh, they're married? And I think that that was you know, very smart writing and very smart acting. And But I, I like that in a lesser movie, they would bicker. And in this, they're just kind of a little standoffish, a little like, eh, you know, but they're still like, it's nice to see you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like that uh, in, this, in this film, like, he's actually surprised that she's being nice, you know, like, because of their, yeah. their previous relationship. And instead of showing that, like, it's sort of she's like the scene that they're playing is she's being sort of surprisingly happy to see him, which is cool. It's, you don't always right. see that in, in this type of um, I mean, there's some real cliches here, though, folks. I mean, like the. The the thing with the father is really, really tacked on. I mean, like, another cop who's trying to live up to the reputation of his father, who is a cop. I mean, like, I, even though it's, like, a very specific job, I've seen that 35 times. And I don't even know why it's in here, because they don't really get any mileage out of it. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that also pops up in uh, Last Shift. Is, uh, <laughs> I'm familiar with The Last Shift, Mike. I'm going to have to check that out. That's you yeah, my interest. It's pretty good. One of the things that I think is done really well in this movie is the timing of this next big spike. Because, like, the way it's edited and the scene that it follows, you don't really, you're not in it any follows. way. Ah, let's see hey! <laughs> the, by the way, there's a couple, like, t- moments with Steadicam following characters walking that really reminded me of It Follows watching this film. Anyway. The guy kind of casually, our cop, casually wanders down the hall and happens to just stop by or walk past the room where that patient was watching Night of the Living Dead when the TV went out on the fritz. And he he just sort of looks in there and, you know, know, there's nothing to tell you this is a big scene that something is about to happen. And you see Beverly sort of standing in front of him and her back is turned. And it's extremely, extremely well done. And then you just see her pulling a long pair of scissors all the way out of this dude's eye socket and turning her yep. face. And it is good. It is very, very good. Yeah, she's already <laughs> carved her face off. Yes, and she has <laughs> cut the face off of her face. <laughs> and she is saying, yeah. she's saying, it's not my face, which is brilliant. Oh, and I yeah. have to say, like, at this moment, one of the things that this film does extremely well is that the bad guys consistently 
their dialogue is innocuous. It is yeah, the yeah. opposite yeah. of threatening. And there's something so unthreatening or unscary on some level. Like, sometimes it can be effective. But, you know, like, if they're being like, we're going to rip your flesh from your bones and eat it. And then yeah, vomit yeah, yeah, it yeah. into your throat. Like, it's like, okay, whatever. All right, threats. But they're consistently like, you know, either she's like confused in her dialogue here. And yeah, it's disturbing that she's, you know, saying, claiming that this isn't her face, that she's cut off, which is awesome. But like uh, the antagonist later is all about like, you know, I'm going to help her and I'm going to help you all. And, yes. you know, I know that it's hard for you to understand this, but, you know, I'm an ultra, I'm doing this from, uh, I don't know if altruist is the word, but he uses a word like that. It's anti-overt, you know, it's the opposite of yeah. obvious dialogue. And, it, yeah. and yet it's infinitely more creepy because of the sort of, you know, it's not even a veneer, it's not an act, but like this real kind of earnest um non-aggression that comes out of yeah. it that is so in conflict with what's really happening that it's yeah. awesome it works so well i i noticed that even the monsters they don't roar they're they're always whimpering and mewling mm-hmm. uh they're they're always, even when they're like flailing around they're, they're like gigantic things you know attacking people with tentacles their their actual sound bed is like <laughs> well yeah and it's kind you of know? like a alien resurrection in that it was called the newborn right right and yeah there's I, a I, lot I, of newborns in this film yeah i mean i mean all of the uh the antagonists uh with the exception of the silent cultists they're innocuous or actively pathetic in some way it seems like they're they're as much of a victim of the circumstances the people that they're assaulting just to, to once again plug my own shit uh, this, <laughs> you will find, I think, some of this in Darkness Rising. It is the language of people who have looked upon Lovecraftian horrors. And that, that language is more frightening than what you could actually potentially see. That you, you are hearing people who have been driven mad by some revelation. Uh, and it's exactly what you get from Beverly in the scene. But you get it in many other places. It's very hard to write in a way that is convincing and, and upsetting and scary and terrifying. Uh, and I absolutely agree. They, they nail it time and time again in this movie. So our uh, f- now faceless, confused, but, uh, but threatening, because she's coming at him with a scalpel, Beverly uh, approaches the cop and he is forced to put a bullet in her and put her down. And, uh, of course, this is going to be treated as a officer-related, uh, uh, officer use of force case. And there happens to be a state policeman in the immediate vicinity because he was uh, investigating the, the burning of the woman in the, in the house from the open and the, uh, the incident that we saw. So he shows up and um, kind of takes control. And it's an interesting little dynamic here as initially – the lead uh, Carter is, uh, you know, thrown for such a loop, and he spends a lot of the early portion of this film, you know, either passing out or, um, you know, being wounded. Yeah, yeah and... exactly. <laughs> well, I, I mean, on second viewing, it occurred to me that I think they were trying to make that state trooper a red herring. Like, I didn't pick up on that the first time, but the second time I was watching the movie, I'm like, you know, for one thing, he's, like, instantly unlikable. He's, like, a mean guy and takes his gun away and says shitty things 
about his dad, like out of nowhere. Yeah, that's very uh, out of nowhere. He's basically yeah, like, yeah, your, like, your dad would roll over in his grave if he saw the shit that you were doing here. Yeah, like he's like, responsible he, like, for all this crap. Yeah, I, I, I was like, motherfucker, I, I, I aimed some chick cut her face off and came out with with a pair of scissors. What do you think my dad would have done? You know, fucking, <laughs> you know, give her, give, give her a fucking drop kick off the turnbuckle. What the fuck? You know, I, you know it occurred to me that maybe uh, because also in dialogue he chews on how weird it is how fast he got there. He's like, wow, you got here really quick. What are you do, 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 do? You know, it, it's it seems like they're circling the idea that that he's you know our bad guy. He's got something going on. He also passes out, and we get the first taste of the void. And I like the fact that this is a movie called The Void. Actually, shows us the void. And one of the things that I truly, truly loved about this movie is in terms of Lovecraftian elements, it's extraordinarily rare that we get the cosmic horror of Lovecraft. A lot of movies will give us the cults and the tentacled monsters and sometimes the old books, but almost never do we get the cosmic horror element. And the first time I saw his view of the void, I man, my my heart went fast. I'm like, oh shit. Oh my god, this is so cool. I was I got so excited. And perhaps the only other film that I can think of right off the top of my head would be uh, The Beyond. You know, that gets the cosmic horror element. I agree. I mean, that is, again, this first shot. The, it's funny, the thing that popped into my head was 2001, that it had that Kubrickian feel of, you're right, Mike, in that this movie has a scope, a feeling of being epic in a way that a horror movie contained to a single location shouldn't have. And these is literally these shots uh, and there are they 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 continue throughout and they get a little more expansive and they start to have a little more context, but without ever being overly explained, which is which is crucially important. They give you that this is not people just trapped in a house. These people are trapped in a hospital, but what's at stake is cosmic. You're absolutely right. There are so many horror films that are about there's a contained element, and mm-hmm. that can very, very, very easily lead to uh, movies feeling small. Uh, this movie, even though it's contained, it never feels small. There are big ideas at play here, and that's and and to convey those visually early on in the film is to you know is to let you know, look, we're not. We're not playing in the playground that you've been at before. Some shit that you that, that's maybe a little different. Or again, we're pulling from all these different areas of the genre and all this different stuff that you're going to have fun sitting around shooting the shit like we are talking about where the different influences are. Right. But don't forget that this is, you're right, you're absolutely right, this is cosmic horror. And that is something that you just don't see very much. And on top of everything else, it looks fucking great. It yes. looks awesome. It's it's just like, just the visuals are absolutely fantastic. And I, uh, you know, just a very quick sidebar. Very recently, I've been kind of circling the idea that not enough cinematic influence has been drawn from the art of album covers. And recently, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy two, and there are a ton of shots in there 
that would look awesome as album covers. And this movie, I can't remember the last time that I saw a horror movie that was like wall to wall with shit that would make awesome album covers, uh, whether it's metal or any other genre. It's like when the cultists are all outside or the shots that we're talking about or even just the insignia or later on when the guy's in front of the glowing thing to the other world and it's full of great fucking solid arresting visuals this entire movie this pyramid that uh is the sort of cult symbol is, yeah. is really striking the black pyramid by the way one of the interesting things about this dream sequence uh which certainly sort of evokes prince of darkness in that some of the images are foreshadowing of the future the landscape beneath the clouds you know that we don't have the the pyramid or the triangle imagery here but we have these turbulent skies that mirror the turbulent nebulas of space the the cosmic element that we get later uh it seemed like there's lights on the ground and i i thought that was kind of a discussion point in that like they could easily have removed that if this was shot uh you know over uh, a town or something just to get the you know the landscape but no they they have this these lights that to me suggests that it's it, there's civilization there and and you see this throughout whenever we we get the um this landscape including at the very end did you guys think like did you just read that as those are just shafts of light on the ground or did you think that this was meant to be suggest that this was coming to our civilized world i, I think i know something like that but i just didn't give it much thought but uh it, it would be cool if i uh, if the movie was suggesting that you know there, there was a civilization there maybe it's carcosa i found myself thinking actually though i mean and, and this is kind of important during this scene and during lots of other scenes I mean, not just this scene but in lots of other scenes when you're dealing with not just ideas this big, but the visuals that go along to, to bring those to mind, I kept thinking, fuck, I wish I was watching this in a movie theater. And it, it just goes back to It Follows, where there was a time where this movie would have gotten a decent release, and it would have made 25 or $30 million, and it wouldn't have just been on demand. I mean, it, it did play theatrically. I think the, the box office is listed about 150 grand. That just means that it, it played a couple of Exactly. That's, they had a contractual obligation to put it in 50 theaters, so they put it in 50 theaters with no... But still, I'm looking at this going, this, this is a movie that should be experienced on the big screen. If you're going to watch this... Go to your friend's house that's got the the 60-inch fucking drive-in HD Samsung and watch it on that. Like, don't watch it on your computer like I did because <laughs> it, suffers. it suffers for that. And oh, I, I watch it on my iPhone. Is that bad? Just yes. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I watch it on my iWatch. Is that bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that I should note um, because I've I've done a little research since we started the podcast. Um, it was crowdfunded on Indiegogo, which is interesting. Initially, it raised eighty two grand. Showed at uh, the Toronto After Dark Film Festival, which is where a lot of horror films get their festival debut. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Vic, it, it got kind of a ceremonial fifty theater uh, release in April and uh, only grossed fifty five. K on its opening weekend. But yeah, this was clearly one of those things that was sort of, you know, destined to be on demand and home entertainment platforms, which is fine. Um, and it looks really, really good. You were talking about, uh, Mike, you know, the quality of the cinematography and the, and the look and the art direction and all that. 
for a, a film of this budget, it's really remarkable what they pulled off. But again, like you know, you you can't make the thing on this kind of budget. And they they I think their ambition sort of uh, outstripped their their ability to realize it. At least with the monsters. So speaking of monsters, uh, let's skip ahead a little bit because there's uh, there's the introduction of, or the first encounter because we've already introduced them. These cultists who wear kind of KKK like uh, in some ways outfits, these white hoods and whatnot, but they have the black pyramid in the front of their of their face in the hood, mm. which is a, a very striking image. And uh, he encounters them. Um, our cop Carter does when he goes out to his car to try to radio for. Uh, to call in, you know, the incident and, you know, the, the phones and, and everything in the hospital are, are dead and the radio in the car isn't working and uh, he's attacked by a cultist. But, uh, you know, back in the hospital, Beverly's corpse uh, sprouts tentacles from her eyes, which is very, very the thing. And this beast uh, attacks and kills the uh, state patrolman and uh, gouges out his eyes. I think it's worth noting. Somehow, though, the, the two newcomers into the situation are able to kill the, the thing with fire axes. And, of course, the newcomers I'm speaking of are the, uh, the father and son who apparently have names. Vincent is the older guy. And um, I'm not seeing the, uh, the younger guy, but we mentioned them before. They're the, the guys that burned up the, the girl in the open. And we're starting to get the feeling by this point that... It, this person, uh, the girl, was infected in some way with the same thing that infected Beverly. What do you guys make of this sort of transmission of evil, uh, like, and, and beginning with, like, how did it get into Beverly? And, you know, what, why was it in the girl, like, who acted so normal in the open? There isn't any reason to think that it was in the girl at the beginning because it's not as so far as we can tell it's not in the druggy guy that gets picked up nope which means that it's entirely possible that they just set this girl on fire and there was nothing wrong with her Um, i think you're right (laughs) yeah i mean i think you have you have to acknowledge that that's certainly a possibility there aren't a lot of rules laid out for the way that this works there's a lot of discussion of change and metamorphosis and you know i mean sort of chrysalises and and caterp- yeah caterpillars becoming moss and these sorts of transformations mm-hmm. the people in fact I, I believe you know it's discussed at some point that the cultists are waiting for their transformation digs a little bit into in the mouth of madness again very derivative of lovecraft where certain knowledge will change you physically even you know what i'm even going to go a step further and talk about the canadian horror film pontypool in which the language becomes an infection that changes you and so there is this sense that people like beverly get infected but we don't quite understand how or why and later on i think throughout the film you're going to see certain people get infected without ever really seeing when or how now with beverly in particular i feel like there's a scene john you mentioned we don't get a beat with her she doesn't get a character definition like we get for most of the other 
characters. I had the vague sense that there is a transitional scene somewhere in there that got cut. And that doesn't bother me because that reveal is so shocking. It really works and gets a hold of you. But I wonder if there isn't on the cutting room floor somewhere a sense of maybe how Beverly picked it up. But I think it works better because I don't think there are any rules. I don't think there's any way to know how these things got into you or how they didn't. I don't need really cut and dried rules. And in fact, I actually kind of push back away from that. I really think that it's nightmare logic. How did Beverly get it? I don't know. I don't care. It's just fucking scary. And I think that especially when it comes to Lovecraftian horror, there is a, an idea that the supernatural was almost like a radioactivity where it just kind of creeps into you. And the bad guys have basically opened the door to a reactor, and now the radioactivity is getting out. So weird shit's going to happen. And and that's all you need to know. There's a moment, too, later on in the film where the older man with his son, and you see him sort of hallucinating. And again, there's some, some questionable directorial techniques going on there. But the son says something like, it's in his head. And you start well, to go, well, wait, what is he talking about? Uh-huh. But again, it was it's this introduction of this new idea. You start to see it play out a little bit with some of the other people, but there's never, there's no one who ever says, you know, once you get cut by it, then it can show you your greatest fear or whatever. Like it doesn't, compared to, say, Event Horizon, where the rules are laid out in this very cut and dry way, uh, I know that Event Horizon is is sort of generally regarded as an exceptional or at least a you know above average horror film. I take a lot of issue with that simplicity. Uh, and while even those scenes I think work less for me than other scenes in the film, that they work at all as a function of the fact that what the fuck is going on when yeah. all of a sudden people can't distinguish reality from fiction or you know. Uh, whatever this evil is doing to manipulate them. Are you saying that yeah. Event Horizon is viewed as a classic? I, I had never heard anyone like say that. Really? No. Yeah, no. I, I think that among the, the horror community, yeah, I would say that Event Horizon is generally viewed very well. I liked it when it first came out, and I got a sudden bug up my ass to watch it again about six months ago. Then, man, it really didn't hold up for me. No, I mean, I was 20, 21. I don't know how old, but you know, you know, young, closer to my teens than my yeah. 30s, that's for sure. And I saw it in the fucking theater, and I was like, that's eh, kind of a mess. I mean, there were certainly some visuals, but I, I couldn't have told you much about it, like, specifically two or three years later, let alone like have the desire to watch it multiple times. And wait, wait, 2015 IO9 has all the reasons why event horizon is a hell of a good time. Hi. Well, that doesn't sound like uh, exactly, you know, um, it sounds like, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. You're talking about among genre of fanboys, a movie that was made in 1997 is getting articles written about it. Okay. Nobody's, nobody's, I don't. I don't see the articles about In the Mouth of Madness being written, and that's yeah. a far superior film. I think it's safe to say that it's a generally well-regarded film. I, but like I said, man, I revisited it not that long ago, oh. and I, I spent the whole time watching. It. I'm like, this isn't old enough for me. Is I would up. have to see it again to really deliver a uh, yeah. um, a verdict. But I none none of this none of this is is a defense of the film because I again I don't actually like it that much. But I just clicked on Den of Geek. Event Horizon, from doomed ship to cult gem. 
Well, let's go on to the next discussion point here, which is when Dr. Powell is uh, trying to get the... We learned that he's a drug addict, and that's how he got involved in this thing. The guy that was found on the side of the road by Carter... Uh, and he's been mostly unconscious through up to this point in the film. He uh, picks up a scalpel and he's holding the pregnant girl hostage. And Dr. Powell attempts to talk him down and appears to have no fear whatsoever of death. So uh, <laughs> I wonder why. But ultimately, the uh, the guy stabs him in the throat. And yeah. uh, he um, you know seems shocked by this as he sinks to the floor, Dr. Powell, I mean. And um, blood is uh, gushing from his... His uh, exsanguinating neck, I think I said that right. <laughs> um, exsanguinating. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Exsanguinating neck. Yeah. And uh, he he ultimately uh, dies. And I think that that is uh, probably a point where if you're with us at this, at this juncture and you don't want any spoilers, uh, this would be where you might uh, hit pause and go check out the movie because we're going to, we're going to get a succession of twists here. And I just want to, you know, kick that off with just asking uh, you guys, do you think that this event, the doctor being killed here, do you think this changes anything that happens subsequently? I will say dude, that this sequence I think is masterfully done. It is one of the best examples of a sequence that just piles on one huge fucking problem on top of the other. Problem one is no communication. Problem two is that the place is surrounded by knife wheel and cultists. Problem three is the two guys with guns burst through the door and start threatening everybody. Problem four is the druggy guy escapes with the scalpel. Problem six is there's a monster in the room that, that he was just in. And then problem seven is the druggy guy stabs the doctor in the neck, and now he's dying on the floor. It's like one huge fucking thing after another, after another, after another. Boom, boom, boom. It's really muscular, action-driven storytelling. And it heightens the, the threat that the movie is presenting to the characters through the fucking roof, man. Like, I, I was like, yeah. I, I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, this is you know? a very intense sequence. You're absolutely right. And something that the movie does on a couple of occasions, even though everyone is, you know, in the same place in this scene, but I think it's somewhat similar or, yeah. you know, like the idea that mounting tension through having a bunch of stuff happening yes. uh, is done very skillfully. Very skillfully and very frequently. I, it seems almost like it was a choice going into the film that there's like when shit goes down, shit really goes down. Like the, there's a ton of stuff that's going to hit the characters all at once and they're going to be pulled, you know, nine ways to Sunday. And it's a very uh, well edited film from that perspective because oh, yeah. it, it does, even though I can take issue with, what is discernible within the frame, but the mm -hmm. the actual construction of the film from an editing standpoint is is top notch. Yeah, it's rare that I even see horror movies or even thrillers pile in onto the characters quite like this movie does. Because very often in horror movies, the characters are presented with maybe one or two problems, and in this sequence, right off the top of my head, I rattled off seven. They have seven problems. And that's not even counting with the pregnant girl. And a bitch ain't one. 
Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. Dude, it's a great fucking sequence and one of several. That's all true, but what they're whittling you down to is the pregnant girl that they have to protect against the evils within the hospital and the evils without the, you know, without the cult members outside. I agree. It's an enormously effective sequence, but it's, it has this sense in the moment of, yes, there's, there's this and there's this and there's this and how the fuck are they going to deal with all this? And you see the characters panicking in the face of it, but what you wind up with, and again, this is just great economical storytelling is there's a, there's a woman about to have a baby. And there's right. and you have to you either have to get her out or you're gonna have to do a C section or there's I mean there's something awful just getting ready to happen around this pregnant girl and the only way you can stop it is take your gun and go into the basement. Um, they're whittling you down to how to protect the a pregnant woman being the symbol of the most vulnerable and protected by again you know male characters with guns i mean it appeals to your most protective instincts which the movie ultimately kind of betrays mm-hmm. well allison uh makes a lot of key decisions based on and and convinces them to make key decisions based on protecting that girl as well so it's not i mean well, i don't know that you were going for like a strictly patriarchal reading but you know yeah she absolutely is just as involved in that as they are I think that Daniel and Allison are set up as a couple who have lost a child. And so you give them, again, besides the, the, the broader societal sort of elemental desire to protect a pregnant woman, they have this even deeper, stronger need to protect an unborn baby because they themselves have lost a baby, as has Dr. Powell. It's a really prevalent theme is death as it applies to children and what parents do to fill this void that's left because of it i I think that it's it's always a strong and uh efficient and elemental way into protagonist antagonist is if they fundamentally agree or if i if if they've shared something and what makes the antagonist a villain is how he responds to you know a very similar scenario he's lost a daughter and even tells carter uh man i was you know that really fucked me up it ruined my life and you know, Carter commiserates with him because he's also been through you know, a similar scenario. What makes him a hero and you know, uh, the doctor a villain is the doctor reaches out to Lovecraftian elements and <laughs> is willing to yeah, sell his soul and twist the morals around him to achieve this, this fucked up goal. He has a line, and I, I don't know that I'm going to do it justice verbatim, but he says something like, you would be amazed what's out there if you go looking for it. It's basically to just answer a question of how he got these fucking Necronomicon-type books. Where'd he get all this shit? Ah, he went looking for it. And again, on, on some level, though, I mean, <laughs> and, and generally I'm in agreement and I'm appreciating the film more and more. But, like, what could be more cliche, like, if you just look at it in and of itself, that mm-hmm. the guy is trying to bring his dead daughter back to life? Gee, never, yeah, never seen that one before. Very little about this movie pushes the envelope or rewrites the rules. Like I, you know, like I keep saying, I regard this film as the greatest hits tape. It's not doing a whole Wait, lot. It's not new. that because that would be. It's not that. It's a cover, is what it is. It's a yeah, good but, cover. Yeah, yeah. Like they're I, I, doing. Like, they're changing it enough that it's like, oh well, when this band does that, you know, that song, it's um, they're accentuating certain things, like you know that. 
a good baseline. They've amped that up a lot, right. and you know they they work with the chorus in in a in a way that you know sort of stands on its own. But but yeah, it's it's it it's not a recycling verbatim. It's more a we're inspired by all this and we're going to kind of do our own thing that 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 plays on that and that it, it's successful in that but but certain elements are just so really really tired that i think in my opinion it it keeps the film from really transcending a cover um and and it, it's you know it, it relegates it to more of a um a footnote status so the interesting little Again, this is nothing novel, but the evolution of our lead has a turn here where finally uh, Carter completely takes charge and, you know, is is leading the situation. And, you know, the the state police guy was like just absolutely gobsmacked and incapable to such a degree that he was the first one to go. And now... Our guy is uh, trying to negotiate with the armed gunman, and he gets his ass knocked out by the father dude who uh, takes him out with a uh, fire axe to the jaw. And, you know, it's another sort of setback for the for the lead, but he's still talking. And he and Allison, you know, managed to stabilize the situation. And we gradually start to get on the same team here as the conflicts are very nigh the living dead in the sense that, you know, well, I think we should do this and I think we should do that. And so we're, we're at odds, but, uh, you know, gradually an affinity, uh, builds between these characters, but not to any, any great degree. I wouldn't say that character relationships are a strength of the film. Again, we're kind of talking about things that we often see in contained horror movies, and almost always, there's always going to be some conflict in there. And this is one of the rare films in which I really felt and bought real, real conflict between these guys. The two armed dudes who come in are definitely their own unit, and their danger is palpable to everybody in the room. Like they're actively talking about killing everybody and burning down the whole place, and you know just right. the entire thing. And yeah. we saw them do that. Yes, I, I mean they're palpably dangerous elements that are a third wheel to the other dangerous elements, which is the cultists and the monsters and everything else. My other very small quibble with this film is that he gets beaten down so often in Act mm-hmm. One. First he gets a shock and he falls unconscious and then he gets stabbed and then he gets slugged. It, it felt like like one of those would be really impactful, but like all three of them in, instead of 100% of one, we get kind of 33% of three. Well, it, it becomes um, somewhat repetitive. But uh, I do yeah, like that at yeah. a later point he says, you could kick my ass, and I know it, yeah. but yeah. which I think you know has been proven. And it is a different dynamic that our hero is not leaning on you know by virtue of being a badass in a traditional physical way. He's actually right. kind of a slightly built guy, and I don't hold that against him. I mean, if anything, that's one of the things that, that isn't cliche. You know? If you're going to have a beat where our hero gets wounded and he falls to the ground and he's out for a little bit and then comes back. Why do you do it twice, like in 10 yeah, minutes? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's uh, a little bit of what you might call a stutter beat. I, what bothered me about this sequence is that the, the father and son characters are sort of unnecessarily oblique. 
in that they, they sort of obviously know that there's something going on, but they're choosing not to share it with anyone. And maybe they're, you know, ah, well, we're kind of, we don't know if we can trust them. And they're, they're sort of oblique in their reasoning, but it just, it, I, it reminded me of like, there were scenes in Lost where they would capture a character who knew something and the show would just contrive these reasons, you know, to withhold information. I yes. felt like once the, once they had teamed up to kill the Beverly character, there was really not any reason for them to not just share all their information. Well, and I don't get know a- about that. I mean, I agree with you on Lost because that drove me nuts. But like one right. thing I will say in this film is that because you have sort of the infection thing and you do the, the backstory with the son having his vocal cords, his throat is clearly damaged, is that the last person that they trusted did that to him. And we never right. get the backstory. But, you know, clearly when, when with Beverly turning that quickly and ultimately uh, Simon is the, is the father's name, you know, what happens to him with the mental assault on him that occurs, you know, I, I would say it's reasonable to expect that anyone could be uh, a cat's paw of the evil or whether they know it yet or not. And that, again, that ties back to the thing. The paranoia, I feel, is relatively well well sold they spend most of the movie unexplained we, we see we open with the movie with them in action and we never get big speeches about their childhoods or you know any well, of we that we see this bloody uh child's shoe uh tumble from his pocket at the father's right. pocket at, at right point. yeah yeah I, I i there's an entire movie that happened to those two guys before they even show up and i yeah. love that shit I love the fact that the the rules are unexplained. I love the fact that the other sources of danger are these two guys, and they're very little is explained about them, too. I dig that shit, man. There are times when it works, and there are times when it doesn't. It doesn't work for me when the shoe tumbles out. That's too on the nose. And again, I can't tell you, I can't tell you why that work, why that doesn't work and why the other ones do. It doesn't work for me when we get this like, oh, it's in his head and there's a vague sort of hallucinatory scene later on that feels like it's in the, the home, whatever else. But there's one shot to me is epic. It's one of the best in the film when the dad is in the grips of the creature and he looks back at the son and says, do it, meaning kill me. And behind the sun, you see this image of a woman holding a baby. Yes. There's no other context when you come back to it later and she's not there. But that single image, again, tied together with the vagaries of what we've learned up to that point, it could have done with just that. They actually could have been more subtle than they were because there are other times when they're too on the nose and it actually hurts. Yeah, I'm not necessarily going to remember or mention all of them, but like there are three or four like really sort of clunky, tone deaf sort of uh, moments throughout the film. But, you know, there are others that feel really well tuned and well delivered. So it's uneven, but not, you know, I would say there's more good than bad. But one of the next things that key plot points that I think are, you know, sort of significant is that. Her character, our lead, uh, gets his wife to promise that she won't go to the medical supply room alone to get, you know, necessary medicine for the pregnant woman. And meanwhile, he he needed to extract that promise because he's going to the car to get uh, his shotgun out of the, the prowler and ammunition. And he's taking his two new allies, uh, the father and son, with him. 
And what does she do the second that he uh, leaves? He, she goes down, walking alone through this empty hospital, having seen a giant monster and um, you know known that her colleague cut off her own face and stabbed a guy in the eye. But she's going to go down there alone because she's funky and purposeful and, damn it, I'm going to break my promise. And, of course, uh, the doctor returns from the dead to um, clearly, you know, abduct her or something here. Now, this bothered me a lot. You know, at least, like, show that the girl who's pregnant, like, is about to die if you don't get the medicine. And so she has to make a hard choice. And so she runs off there. Not to be a hero, but because it... I'm sorry, I can't wait the extra five minutes. It doesn't do that. And I, I it really annoys me that when characters do stuff like that, that, you know... This is this character's doom. You know, uh, the problem I need to jump. <laughs> Margie, <laughs> you got to eat some breakfast, Margie. I'll make you some <laughs> eggs. You got to eat a breakfast, Margie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed um, the sequence with the uh, police car. I really yes, dug that. I, yes. I I thought that was uh, very nicely tense. Uh, I Other the than the one thing creepy. is that you never get like yeah these shadowy figures, uh, white robe mm-hmm. figures are um, wonderfully lit up by the flashing uh, police lights. Uh, about yeah, twenty to thirty feet away. It's amazing, mm-hmm. but you don't get why it's taking so long. So you kind of share the frustration of the father when he's like, well, come on, we've got to go. And you see our, um, our, our lead kind of fumbling, but well, you don't know like what, like, is it too dark? Is he not getting the key in the lock to unlock the shotgun? And I just, I wish I understood why it was taking him so goddamn long. I, I get that. It felt a touch contrived, uh, not quite as contrived as the girl who loses the ability to use her legs at the end of uh, Tomb of the Blind Dead. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of got the sense that he's never taken that shotgun out before. Oh, yeah, that's a that's that, I like that that read. I like that interpretation. But you're right. I'm I'm kind of lading my own. I, like I, I'm I'm making an excuse for like the if movie that was the, like the reason, yeah. why can't you yeah. have a beat in there? You know that established that fact and that right. Yeah, yeah. Problem. yeah. I, I yeah. It's like due to the fact that I like the movie, I'm making excuses for it as I'm going along. Like I'm provide I'm providing my own like kind of mental spackle to stuff like that it's ultimately it's an excuse for that image of the the people in the robes with the triangle who hold all of them holding one knife out to one side yeah i mean look a lot of this movie is driven by visual ideas that are scary as fucking hell and the plot is gonna is gonna twist and contrive its way into places that allow them to put those things on screen, and they're deeply unsettling. Again, we talk about that nightmare logic. There's a place for movies that are gonna twist things around so that they can show you really fucked up things, and those are the things that wake you up in the middle of the night. Those are the things that infect your own nightmares. It is not shot in a way that feels logically thought out. But I think that's true a lot of the movie. Um, and in some places, it, it works to great effect. And in other places, it works to the film's detriment. This is one of the places where I feel like it works to its its great effect. I feel like there are a couple of shots in this sequence in particular that are terrifying and that I will think about for days, uh, if not longer, afterward. I think about something that I don't think the film actually managed to pull off, but I know it was going for it. And I love that, which is... The- 
the Beverly creature, I get the distinct impression that the 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 corpse of the woman becomes like almost like a just oh back to the moth and chrysalis thing that it is this it's still attached but the thing has sprouted out from it and so you have this sort of bobbing corpse and skull uh up front but the thing has grown out of the back of it. So you're fighting something that has this dead body just sort of flailing around in front of it while the, the monster has, has sprouted from the back. And like, I feel like that would be an amazing Bernie Wrightson comic book panel. Uh, yeah. So I see it in my mind's eye. That's cool, man. Yeah. And they, they you know, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely suggested. It's not like I'm pulling that out of my ass. So, oh, yeah. um, pretty much here we get this next scene where the phone call comes from the morgue and, um, <laughs> deputy Daniel Carter gets a call from Dr. Powell and yep. yes, I am dead, but Hey, you know, like, let me try to rationalize what I've done. And meanwhile, the father is going through these Polaroids, which I can't make any heads or tails out of anything in those photos. <laughs> uh, but you mean you get a robe and you get the pyramid. So, you know, it's like, oh, uh, cult photos. All right. Yeah. Uh, every All the characters and the audience get that uh, Dr. Powell has been, as a human, like a living uh, person prior to his death, been orchestrating all of this in, in some way. And this is kind of where we come back to the notion. And he has Allison, of course, by the way. Uh, and we, this is where we come back to the the question of, I am just curious, like, how would this movie have been different if he had not been killed? Like, is it completely irrelevant? Or, like, is the fact that he's like, whoa, I'm dead. And, oh, look at this. And, you know, he's sort of, he seems to be having a um, a breakthrough of his own by being dead. And I just I'm I'm interested to know what you guys think about the idea that I don't think he expected to die. We find out that the pregnant girl is pregnant with his child yeah. or yeah, you know, and it's going to be his daughter reborn, or at least his daughter by way of slime creature from another dimension reborn. And I think that's the basic plan. And when he dies and comes back, the doctor has shown that this power is real. Oh, definitive proof. He knew with a small K going into this, but uh, now it's like, oh shit, this is on. This is real. These gods are real. I'm back from the dead, man. And uh, and he's very calm about this entire scenario, which I I really love. Well, his motivation, as we learn um, in one of his multiple, he has a lot of long, not long, but, you know, medium-sized monologues. Is that it is to defeat death, which is very um, Lovecraft uh, and, and reanimator specifically, which ties us back to Stuart Gordon. You know, defeating death and you know the amazing liberation of that transformation. I think that that was always his his endpoint. I think that uh, this serves less of a narrative function than it does a visceral, horrific one in that one of the prevalent images of this film is a person with their back to you that is doing something horrible. And the camera tends to sit in the, in the perspective of someone looking on as this person with their back to you 
you know, looks kind of half turns their face to look at you and you get some vague glimpse of it. We first see it with Beverly uh, when she is jamming the, the scissors into uh, the, the guy's eye and then she's cut off her face and there's a, I, there, there are other instances of it. But the next great instance of it really is Dr. Powell when Allison is uh, strapped to the table and what we gradually discern as he speaks. And again, you get little inserts of it is that he is observing his own transformation after death. And this feels almost singularly like Cronenberg. This feels like the fly that he is taking a uh, medical fascination in watching his chrysalis transform him from man into whatever lies on the other side of the void or whatever. really interesting that he's a doctor and he references this very directly in that he's spent his life, his life's work is fighting death. Mm -hmm. And what a, what a relief or a release it is to say, no, I, you know, stopping people from dying was, was a futile exercise, but helping them transform through death. Now that. That is really, you know, something exciting. And I think and, it's perfect that he's a doctor, given that, that where, I, where this character goes. And when you take that idea and then put it as the film does, where you're talking about transformation and you're talking about death, but you can't see the transformation. All you see are the things that this doctor is removing from his body and placing in this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. This is also one of the few times that uh, I've ever seen a character kind of get captured and strapped down to something and really feel an imminent danger for her. Ordinarily, the character is just kind of there and they're restrained and yeah, you never feel like something bad is actually going to happen to them. But in this case, I was really kind of chewing my knuckles over her fate. Yeah, you definitely don't take for granted that she's going to be rescued, right? Yeah, and that's paid off, too. I I was really, oh, shit, this woman is in really serious fucking danger. And it's not like he's just going to torture her. It's going to be worse. Yeah, but yet he does it in in that, like, back to the, it's not lip service that he's innocuous or, you know, altruistic. I wish I could remember the word he actually uses. Altruistic, I think, is it. You think it is altruistic? Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. He believes he's doing her a favor, and we sort of realize almost, you know, offhandedly what, that, that it's too late. You know, by the time we see her strapped to that table, it's too late. And she's, uh, you know, we have the fetal, the, the pregnancy images of her, her belly being distended, and it's pulsing in an extremely unnatural and disturbing way. But uh, it is very disturbing that we... Like, I think my favorite scene in this film, it's when Daniel meets her again. He finds her. He's he's penetrated that inmost cave. He's (laughs) gone through that weird, you know, lighting uh, in the window and opened that door. And it's this room. And he there she is. And they connect. And it sort of echoes the pregnancy that went wrong. You know, it's almost like you could read it as... You know, on some level, a flashback to when she was about to give birth to the child that that they lost, who was suffocated by uh, his own umbilical cord. And then you realize that reality has warped and this is a, a fantasy and he's actually holding her 
dead hand. It turned, it literally falls to dust in his hand. Yeah, and those fucked up tentacles coming from her. Oh god, dude, yeah. it's so, it's yeah. so fucking. And awful. you never get it, a good look at what her face actually is like in reality. Yeah, but you yeah, see that dude. it's like blue. You know? Yes, like, I oh. know. It's dude, it's so fucked up. It's so fucking bleak. Yeah, I, I won't say it's one of my favorite things, but I'd say it's probably the queasiest scene in this whole movie. Uh, that that one really kind of twisted my guts a little bit. I'm like, oh my god, that's so fucking horrible. I mean, and, and even <laughs> though we get like five minutes between these two characters before the shit gets real, uh, you know, like, it, it resonated for me, you know, the the horror of that. But oh, yeah. it, it is ultimately undone in, 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 in many ways the ending of this film is a lot like the ending of It Follows. I would say it's a combination of it follows in the beyond. But the, 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 the hands being clasped. They do that in the beyond, too. Yeah, oh, I, I think. really? But, I uh, forgot. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I guess in that movie, though, he's constantly jerking her around because, you know, that's what men do is uh, pull women around by the hand. We have these two characters and they end up in a supernatural landscape and they hold hands and face their extraordinarily uncertain future and then we go to credits. Uh, but in you know, this, in this like, film, it's much more like it follows where in the sense that like they may be in an unbelievably horrible situation, but at least they have each other. And very true. like yeah. Fulci does not have the, the compassion or the... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's he's not trying to give you some ray of hope in that ending. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's very true. And Fulci is just like horrible things happen to you. You're, you're lucky the spiders didn't get your eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a in, incredibly bleak. So in this film, we ultimately have the prisoner, even though he he doesn't have any actionable intelligence whatsoever. Uh, they other than the doctor's a bad guy. Thanks, um, which is acknowledged in the, yeah. in the film. But they, uh, they, he's like, oh yeah, well we already knew that man. Do you know anything helpful? Oh uh, no. So they they go downstairs and there's like, um, which is very, uh, I don't know if it's like strictly Lovecraftian, but the idea that like new sub basements have appeared in this uh, hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like early. Isn't it the student nurse who's like, there is no sub basement. Mm-hmm. I loved that. That's very cool. I Other than the fact that. that she was just transferred here, so what the fuck does she know? Well, she knows the basic layout, but I. I mean, I, so there was I, no sub basement yesterday, but there is today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I got the feeling that this shit had been going on for a while because we have a very the island of Doctor Moreau kind of thing here. Uh, another, you know, I hate to say it, but it's a cliche that the um, the failed experiments of the doctor are in the basement and they make their presence known. And yeah, one of the, them the, is the hospital had gotten burned because they were trying to light yeah. themselves on fire. Yeah, which but is cool to me. I mean, John, I agree. It's kind of a cliche, but it pays off in the doctor says, you know, some of some of them are still down there. They want to die, but I won't let them go. Like, oh, wow, what a strange thing to say. But what you, what they find is that one of them has impaled its head That's on amazing. a like, piece of rebar and is bashing its skull against the wall with the rebar going in. Like it was – that is – again, that's one of the things where it's like, look, like the narrative doesn't 100% support this in a way that makes me go, well, that makes sense. But it lays enough of the groundwork for an image like that that I'm watching it going, 
what the fuck? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. that image is is a I mean, that's a beast. That just jumps. Yeah. I love the image of that zombie ramming its head into a spike over and over and over. Uh that that's a great, great call. Yeah. On top of it, it maintains the idea that the monsters are all pathetic in some yeah, way. I, yeah. I mean, this is really like an island of broken toys down here. and uh, it, uh, But at the same time, they're pathetic. But if you have a creature that can ram rebar through its skull all day, how do you kill that thing? Immediately establishes how dangerous they are because it's like, what the fuck are you going to do to them? You know, it's like. This is really more, if I had to say. All right, gun to your head. What what is this really like? I don't think it's Hellraiser. I don't think it's Barker. I I really think it is the Stuart Gordon interpretation of Lovecraft. The only clearly Barker beat is near the very end when they're running down the hallway and it's closing. Yes. Oh, that's Hellbound. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the second that's, one. Yeah, yeah, that's straight out too. We opened with you guys saying that this stuff didn't bother you, like the the sort of I wouldn't call it name checking, but you know the oh that's that movie, oh that's that movie. But for me, when I see that, I don't like it. It's too it's too close to a, another movie. And I got you. Yeah, it's not that it's smacking me in the face with references mm-hmm. and saying, "Look, look, haha, I'm nudging you in the in the ribs." Right, you, you like that. But right, I still right. am like, I'm too busy thinking about that to really be into the story. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like, oh, what movie was that? Oh, yeah, of course, it's this movie. Dividing line for me is if the film or TV show expects for my primary enjoyment to be derived from recognition. Yes. Kind of like American Horror Story season one, yes. where it's like, you remember that? Huh? You remember that movie? It's like, yeah, y- yes, I yes, I remember it. Well, that's uh, like, uh, we, we could say the lowest form of comedy is X, Y, or Z. This is not the lowest form of comedy, you know? Right. But at the same time... I personally think it's more in the mid-range than the high range. I understand that. I saw all of these things going on in the film, and I spent the entire movie going, oh, that's that. This is that. This is that. This is that. But you don't dwell on it long enough to be distracted by it. Due to the fact that I was simply enjoying the whole of it enough that I think I just accepted it. Well, I mean, I, I, I think we're only like, you know, 20 degrees off of each other's uh, yeah, trajectory. Yeah, I agree with yeah. So, meanwhile, they're exploring the basement. We have some pretty awesome intercutting with the pregnant girl having some major complications. And unfortunately, Kim, the intern, is the only person left to take care of her. And she's being, like, compelled to do a C-section. Right. And, like, oh, God, that's uh, very, you know, icky you know, beat as she's leaning over this belly with a with a scalpel, and the and the grandfather is urging oh, yeah. her to do it, and it, we're intercutting with the goings on in the basement, and it's all really crackerjack stuff. Yeah, I, again, another really really well crafted sequence in yep. which we're just dumping not not only huge problems but multiple huge problems on the characters' heads all at once, and I was really right there with Kim. Yeah, Kim. We we establish at the top of the movie that she doesn't know anything. 
<laughs> she's super new and also but we not, didn't not spend a, enough time with her to really pay that off but you know it's like she, she's not only super new but very clearly like not the hardest worker in the world she's right. kind of unmotivated and when she actually has to get like bitched at just to organize Files boxes and stuff yeah for her it's i mean this is 12 bucks an hour she at least she's shit. not a asian stereotype which would be you know super industrious super motivated you know studious yeah, I, kind of character yeah I, I liked that she was just funny and yeah. new. Her ethnicity was there, but I, it didn't define the character in any way. Even though, like, there's a Prince of Darkness uh, parallel in that at one point she's sort of, you know, hiding, trying to not freak out while shit happens on the other side of a, a vent. At least she didn't tell a witch doctor joke. <laughs> Touche. Um, I will give you that too, but number one, the, the imagery when she's looking through that door, I actually found quite scary, and that's when she sees the figures and she goes, "Oh fuck!" and then she then she covers her mouth, and I like normally that's the kind of thing where I'm like, just shut up, but I for some reason that alarmed me enough that I was like, yeah, I might get out of no fuck before I got my hands over my mouth, but also that fucking C-section scene is really upsetting. Oh, yeah. Um, like, it's every – she keeps getting close to her. And, and this movie has set it up to where you kind of think you might just see a fucking intern perform a C-section. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where they wind up going with it winds up paying off enough that it's okay that you don't see an intern perform a C-section without any anesthesia. It's also worth pointing out. This setup is there for something fucked up now they don't go quite all the way there and that's okay but i was gripping the arms of my chair every time she approached her with that scalpel Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's i mean that's that's something like that's a good scene you you, you've gone to a good place you if if my mind is painting the images that my mind was painting i don't disagree (laughs) at all i mean i think it's it's amazing that they were able to set that up and execute it as well as they did it's really very strong all of a sudden, Maggie, the pregnant girl, switch flips and she slits her grandfather's throat. And now she's totally like, I'm a cultist. Yep, I've been on team cult all along. And I'm I'm filled with the joy and the bliss of anticipation of what I've been a part of. It was a little sudden, but I, I think she was reacting to the fact that the cultists had invaded the hospital She's close to Team Colt, so she can reveal her hand. Uh, well, it's like whereas... she's experienced some kind of rapture, is how she... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder what happens with the doctor at the same time, you know? Well, again, those are the type of things that if you want to sell moments like this, it's not brain surgery to figure out how to, you know, tie those two things so that it, it plays more logically. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think we were missing what you're talking about there, because... A connective beat. Yeah, where it's like, you know, maybe she's under some kind of a spell and she doesn't even know that she's in the cult to the degree that she was because, you know, like these memories are are submerged because they probably should be if the doctor is trying to maintain his cover. Because if she were to tell her grandfather, that might, you know, introduce some complications to the plan. Or is she just a brilliant actress this whole time and is pretending to not be involved? It feels feels a little contrived to me. I'm watching the film as we talk about it, and they just showed the shot after 
the zombie beating its head against the rebar where you actually, uh, which is, we saw it in Nightmare, not Nightmare, um, Texas Chainsaw, the, the remake, where you get the camera shooting through a hole in somebody's head. It's it's still a very arresting visual. One of the monsters is played by a contortionist, and it's creepy, man. Even though we've seen, like, any bad Exorcist movie has people, you know, moving upside down like that. Yeah. Uh, I think in this movie, that's one of the effects that they absolutely nail, is when this thing comes out of this blanket, and it rises up, and it's clearly a, a person upside down. You know, and they're sort of walking in this inverted hands and feet way. It's yeah. uh, it's extremely effective. And yeah, even though I've seen a thousand bad trailers for Exorcist ripoffs, you know, it didn't it didn't trip my trigger as far as like, oh, all right, whatever, recycled imagery. It's it's very yeah. strong. It's a good thing for the contortionists of our great nation, <laughs> the horror genre, <laughs> because now that all the circuses have closed down, they have horror movies to keep them in honest work. Because Cirque du Soleil and only has so many gigs a year. The contortionist American community has a lot to be thankful for in the horror genre. Mike, let's not disparage the people taking part in dishonest work. actually what that scene triggered for me is it is a much better executed version of the fate that julie carmen suffers in uh in the mouth of madness again going back to john carpenter and and sort of lovecraftian ideas there's a scene where she comes out from behind a car in sort of a back bend but with her head twisted around it does not work in that film it's one of the, the weakest moments in it if i recall correctly here i saw it and went well, Jesus, that's fucked up. Like you could, you could sort of see. By God, they improved on something that, that that Carpenter was trying to pull off in that film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that in a vacuum, if you were to watch In the Mouth of Madness and and this film, and just be like, which of these films pushes your buttons more? I would say that this one does. Even though there's like two or three things that weird uh thing on a bicycle comes to mind that are, yeah. are are just very indelible about in the mouth of madness i would say overall this is a this is a scarier movie um, oh, yeah. which is a a big compliment obviously the the girl kim the intern is being menaced by the now revealed cultist pregnant girl who is uh now accompanied by the cultists in their hoods because they've entered the building and yet, like, we never really see Kim fight anyone off. She just kind of runs around with an axe and hides. And I don't know. Like, I still don't feel like this character pays off in any great degree. Agreed. So while all of that is happening, we're getting down to business downstairs in the basement where the whole dream sequence transportation, I don't know. It, it, I liked it, the fact that the kid is transported into, I guess, the family home where we have no idea how long ago this occurred, but we see uh, family portraits of the father himself and a woman, the mother, and we see the mother's uh, dead feet. And we later, as Vic mentioned, see her presence and we never see the child who, who died in this. But we don't know how long ago this was, but obviously some traumatic cult-related stuff went down. And that's what motivated these guys to go on this quest of vengeance. We see the breakdown of the of the mental fortitude of this character, the father, who we've you know seen as basically the most gung ho, anti cult guy, 
and like now it's they've they've turned him and that's that's disturbing and it's it's cool watching them fight and fearing that he's going to kill the mute son um right. it you know in in this sort of fantasy land version of their their home this dream version which brings to mind something that I always loved which I actually I wrote a whole script uh not coming out anytime soon but about, uh... <laughs> oh, Johnny, come on! It's your birthday. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> that would be a birthday present. But I wrote a script about like a, an entity in a house that would transform reality in that house in many ways, and and you could feel like you were living uh, with your loved ones, and uh, you're actually living in an empty, you know, in empty squalor uh, by yourself, starving to death, which as it drains your life essence. But all of that comes from a Ray Bradbury story uh, about Mars, where some Martians contrived a version of the hometown of astronauts. And so the astronauts thought that they had come home to their families, but they, of course, had not. And that kind of thing creeps me right the fuck out. Kind of almost like a war movie what happens is these characters are in this physically extremely harrowing scenario, but you get the feeling that if they just kind of got their backs back to back and they just kind of stuck together, then they might be able to pull it off. But you know, what happens is the mental game, the mind. Uh, Yeah. They get threatened physically, but also they get threatened mentally. And that's how the cohesion of the group falls apart. And that's what leaves them open to, to true danger. Even if there were just a crack squad of, Space Marines, they would have a 25% chance of pulling this off. But then when it starts fucking with their minds, you watch even that small percentage plummet. And you're just like, God, all these people are so doomed. They're doomed. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't win if your perceptions of reality are, are, are undermined. Going crazy is something that we all, in the way that you can relate to going into the ocean and being eaten by a great white shark. You kind of feel like, well, of course, I... What if I went crazy? Then there's nothing I could do, you know? Like, it's a fear that we all, we, we know that people experience mental breakdowns and, you know, being not able to trust your your own perceptions, whether it's paranoia or any, any form of mental illness, is something that is incredibly real. It's not a fantasy. It's not a horror film. So we can tap into that fear in the genre. And that's kind of what's happening, and I'm actually watching this scene right now because um, the movie's a little behind us. Daniel is is grabbing the hand of his wife, and a tear is running down her her eye, and we haven't totally revealed her true fate. That I think that, that this film, like, I have to give it a lot of credit for playing with the the reality and the perceptions of characters. In closing, I think we should talk about the the finale, which is the very Hellraiser skinned Julia look, which Dr. Powell now has. And he's got his his followers around him and he's promising mm-hmm. Daniel uh, wisdom and uh, even to be reunited with Allison. You know, again, I wouldn't call it a cliche, but it's not unexpected that uh, Daniel chooses to thrust both of them into the gateway that has been created in this triangle in the wall, which is a tremendous visual effect, which is again, exactly the ending of Prince of Darkness. 
if right. it, it must be pointed out. Uh, apparently, this derails the plans of Dr. Powell, even though he's simply being transported to the realm that he's already visited, along with Daniel. The quibble that I have with the climax is the reveal of the daughter, because Powell's entire thing is that he lost his daughter, it fucked him up, he went out looking and found the Necronomicon, he delved into knowledge that man was not meant to know. He's opened up this gate. He's tapped into Lovecraftian powers. All sorts of shit is going off the hook. But the entire, through all of this, is this desire to bring his daughter back from beyond the grave. And uh, he's impregnated this girl and sold his soul and all this crazy stuff. So finally, at long last, he gets what he's been after for however much time and paid in incredible prices in terms of his own humanity, the humanity of the people around him. And the, he finally gets, quote unquote, his daughter back. And there's no beat there in which he celebrates it. He's not like, welcome back, Cindy. I've <laughs> missed you. The creature just kind of comes out and it's almost like it shifts directly from its its reveal to Carter rolls for initiative against the 10 hit die monster. <laughs> and and um, she is a, about as impressive as anything in the climax of of like a Resident Evil movie, and that, yeah, yeah, it, I realize yeah. it cost more money than this, but that's still meant to be a, a slight on the film. Like, yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, worth noting that those movies are always CGI driven, and at least this film does well, not use CGI. Then, no, but, yeah. but they, but they still suck, and yes. like the endings tend to suck, and like if this is the Lovecraftian horror, like conjured from the beyond and yeah it sort of looks like that thing from uh alien resurrection um, well I, I see here's the thing is even in alien resurrection uh, as much as i enjoyed beating that movie up uh even when the hybrid is born we cut over to brad Dourif and he goes oh what a beautiful butterfly there's an emotional reaction to the actual birth and this dude has gone through literally heaven and hell to bring his daughter back, and he's at long last done it. And he doesn't even give her a hug. He doesn't like. He doesn't say anything to her. Well, she just kind of slurps out and attacks Carter, and that's nah, it. There, there is a line. Um, I mean, I agree with you overall, but you know, he clearly acknowledges that he sees this thing as her, and he celebrates that. He does not hug her. But we know that 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 he in his mind the thing that comes out is is good enough. He's accomplished his mission. There are other scenes in which you guys were feeling like you wanted something more, and I didn't really care. The climax is the exact opposite. I was like, yeah, I really want something really weird. I want him to get like straight up Cronenberg, where he would give this horrible pupa a loving fatherly hug, right? And- kiss it on the face and get slime all over his lips. And then insert a videotape into some orifice on its body. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like you guys mentioned uh, Cronenberg earlier, and I think of like of all influences that I don't feel were fully processed in this film or interpreted, like I would say ironically, because it's a Canadian film, I don't feel the Cronenberg in this film. It's it's there, but very, very light. It's a very light touch. It's one Way more, yeah, it's way, way, way more about Lovecraft, Gordon. Yeah, and- because if you loved Cronenberg, you could have Cronenberg the shit out of this movie. And it does right. not indulge in any of that, what you're talking about. Like, yeah, it would be slimy, you know, father kisses and 
you know, like Orifice is pulsating and stuff like that. And the movie yeah, doesn't yeah. do that. It's, it's funny, Vic, that you bring up video games. I think it errs on the side of action horror. It doesn't feel like a straight-up action horror movie like the Resident Evil films, but if the movie is going to present a danger, a lot of times it's like a fighting danger. And the most effective beats are when it's not a fighting danger, like when Kimmy has to perhaps perform the C-section. Like, there's no monster to roll initiative against in that scenario, and that's why it's that much more fucked up and queasy and like, Ugh! And the same thing with Carter when he fights his, his wife. It's, Ugh! Exactly. Exactly. you know. That's why that um, scene is so good. I'm not going to fault it too much because I still thoroughly enjoy it, but I, I think that when you get into fighting then you shift into a different realm that has less to do with fear and more to do with, I don't know, action, I guess. Yeah, and the the action sequences are not stellar. I mean, they're not terrible, but, you know, it's it's not it's not a strength of the film. Dead Ringer spits in the eye of uh, what this movie does. With- <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, you know, if... if Given the notes that this guy has taken, or these two guys, these writer-directors from the films that they've um, clearly you know, used as a template, it's just so clear. There's no Cronenberg here, because that would have taken it in, in a very different direction. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like final thoughts on the ending. Um, we, again, we have the exact same ending as Prince of Darkness. Um, except followed by the exact same ending as of, the yes, end. as yeah. The beyond, so. yeah, yeah, where the two characters are are reunited in this you know sort of nightmarish hell hellscape, mm-hmm. and uh, they they take hands, uh, they um, you know uh, are ready to come what may, they will face it together, and that's the end of the film. So what are you what are you guys what are your reads first you Vic on the end of this movie and what are your thoughts and interpretations and your emotional reaction to it? I'm really conflicted on the ending of this film. It is at once I should state off the bat, I am HP Lovecraft is maybe the biggest influence on me as a writer and as someone who loves horror. One of the things that has frustrated me and has in fact I think driven me as a writer is that there are Images conjured in Lovecraft that are so enormously cinematic and yet have never been put on screen. I mean, the fact that nobody has ever looked upon fucking Cthulhu on a 3D IMAX screen is a goddamn travesty. (laughs) Well, hey, there's a good South Park episode. I Well, yes, there's a good South Park. (laughs) Yes, his first appearance is on the real Ghostbusters, but that's not the same thing. Like, you ought to be able to send at least a couple of fucking teenagers trembling and vomiting out of the movie theater at the sight of this thing because we couldn't do it for a hundred fucking years and now we can do it. And when you see them inside this universe and the camera starts to tilt up and because we've seen this pyramid, this triangle with this sun rising behind it, we've seen it a couple of times but we have never seen it with something in the foreground to give it to borrow from Jaws, to give it some scale. And the camera starts to tilt up. And here, even on my computer screen, I started to feel that sense of this is an image that could actually drive someone mad. If you got the scale of this correct. And of course, they can't. They actually have to cut away because it's too big. 
it's too, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they don't do it in a single take. They don't let this thing dwarf them, but they're trying to. And that is noble. If you if you are a fan of horror, that is an attempt to put something on screen that people have not tried before. It should have been on a big screen, which is what I was saying earlier about the film in the $150,000 box office. is pathetic. This should have made $25 million. It should have been on a couple of IMAX screens. And there, there is a version of this where that, that ending scene really does drill into your brain uh, with the same effectiveness, even if the all of the trappings are completely different, but with the same effectiveness of the guy standing in the corner at the end of the Blair Witch Project, for instance. Um, this is definitely a movie where like if I heard that it was playing at the new Bev or even hopefully, you know, a bigger type uh, screen, bigger venue, I'd be like, yeah, I want to see that. I would absolutely again. And I agree. I'm about the same tone with you guys in the the film overall. There are some things that does magnificently. There there are a lot of places where it's lacking, but uh, yes, I would absolutely go see this at the Cinerama Dome or something. Like, I feel like that would that might be, uh, again, if not the earth-shattering experience that I would like to see from a horror film like this. It would be pretty close. It would be closer than many people have gotten, and it's not enough people try. Uh, so I, the ending of the film is imperfect. It is. It's a bit too. I don't want to say it's a bit too dreamlike, but it. I don't know. It didn't. It didn't entirely wow. tie things up for me the way that I wanted it to. But I see what they were getting at, and I understand how hard it is to get there at all, much less to get it on film and, and project it on a big screen or anywhere. So I think uh, I'm I'm more on the opposite side in that, like, so much of this movie, it leaves me a little bit cold or feels familiar or even cliche. And, like, but somehow by the end of it, I, I feel, like, more – I wouldn't say my mind is blown – but I, I kind of feel like the scope of the film and what it all amounted to is greater than it looked like, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes into the film. I, I can't give it credit for a, a conceptual thing that drives that home, but like it's it's somewhat mysterious and enticing and makes you wonder and makes you want more and i'm a sucker for that well john happy birthday but fuck you <laughs> you know oh, it's my birthday and i've been said fuck you three times three times come on i thought you'd take it easy on me on my birthday oh boy blow, blow, blow out your candles <laughs> holy shit well, uh, I enjoy this film because it's, uh, like I said, for, for me, it's kind of a, a greatest hits mixtape in terms of influences. The things that it does do new or the cosmic horror elements, uh, I, I think, are very rare in horror cinema. And I'm always deeply pleased to see that kind of thing going on. And uh, for, for the most part, it's just like kind of a balls out fucking horror movie, man. Uh, a lot of the horror movies that I've come to really appreciate are are more slow burn they're more cerebral they're more uh built on dread and this one is kind of like if someone was outside the genre was like you know what i want to watch a horror movie a really scary horror movie you got anything i would sit them down in front of this in a heartbeat i'd be like here you go let's watch this 
I mean, to your point, really, I mean, yeah. I guess it works to the, the film's advantage that like it's not something where you would have to check out at that point if you weren't a horror movie you know, person. The three of us would be like, oh, and there's melting flesh and the screams go on for 25 seconds. We'd be fine with that. But, you know, like I think a person who wouldn't be, you know, who who, who that would yeah. ruin it for would, would be like, all right, I'm still watching this movie. I'm scared. I'm freaked out. But you didn't lose me. Right, yeah. So that's a good so, thing. The end of the so, movie, I just want to mention again, and I want your reaction to it, that the very final image is them, Allison and Carter, joining hands at the end of this film. You know, you choose a final image, and that's important. And I'll say as devil's advocate that I think it's kind of ludicrous that whatever happened to her happened in our world. And she was used as some kind of breeding ground for a thing. And then the second that Daniel Carter jumps into the the next realm, and I know we're skipping ahead a little here. Um, not only is Dr. Powell not around, um, he immediately meets up with his wife and they're going to go gallivant around the universe together. I wonder if, given the fact that uh, this power can affect your brain in such a way as to show you your past and your future, I wonder if this entire scene isn't an island of that only exists in his mind. Ooh. Well, that I, would be I, really cool, but I don't think the movie is building that up. But I mean, well, I, think I, that's I, cool. I, I, I Again, I, I like the movie enough that I, I'm happy to provide spackle and, and just kind of like fill in blanks to my own imagination. Go, I don't know, maybe it's this cool thing, even though there's no real evidence to suggest that. But who knows? I will throw out as my as my uh, final random thought, especially uh, dovetailing off of the Lovecraft thing. I can't believe this didn't occur to me until just this moment. The lead character is named Daniel Carter, and uh, one of the one of the few recurring characters in Lovecraft thought by many to be sort of a, su- a surrogate for Lovecraft himself, was a character named Randolph Carter. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was most famously uh, portrayed in, in uh, uh, The Silver Key and Through the Gates of the Silver Key, in which he journeys into a bizarre Lovecraftian alternate dimension that does somewhat resemble, in my head, in my memory at least, that the image where Daniel Carter winds up at the end. So... The the as, as different as the character are as the characters are God knows no Lovecraft protagonist ever had an ex wife but um, <laughs> the overall arc for Daniel Carter and Randolph Carter are not so unusual and I would be surprised if that was a coincidence uh, especially because they land at Marsh Hospital I think a lesser movie would be like Dunwich this and Miskatonic that uh, and in this it's Carter Marsh it's uh it's a little more oblique. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be eye-rolling if they had been that overt. Yeah, I mean, so final thoughts on my part. Uh, I think I was a little more negative about the film coming into it than I am on final analysis. So thank you guys for that. This is definitely an interesting film and one that we needed. And, you know, something that I, I hope will uh, have a life beyond what we've seen, and I wish it all all success. All right, well, I'm done talking about it. All right, um, all right. adios, muchachos. All right, guys, <laughs> I will talk to you. I'll, I'll, I'll be back in about uh, four to six weeks. I'll uh, talk to you guys then. All right, Mike, good luck, man. Knock and dead.
Thank you. Literally, literally, just, just knock them all down. <laughs> just, just murder everybody. You've and, got, and, and, you got insurance, dude. Just go for it. Yeah. There please, it please gore out some eyes. <laughs> you, you guys have no idea what this scene is going to It's going to be hilarious. Can't all wait. right, guys. I'll talk to you later. Love Bye. It. All right. Good, good. Take it easy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>